Welcome to the Game and Gadget Podcast. I need to dance or something while that's playing. Yeah, I didn't want that to stop. That was great. <laughs> it's 50 seconds long. It could not risk being any longer. 50 seconds is by sure enough. It gives me plenty of time to grab a drink, freshen up, <laughs> and ready for the start of a an, an roughly hour-long podcast. But anyway, hello everyone. Welcome to the Gaming Gadget Podcast. I'm James Woodcock from pixelrefresh.com. And as you can see, I have two very special guests today. And that's special, of course, in the positive, non-mental institution <laughs> sense. So first of all, I have Neil, who is from the RMC Cave. Is that your official designation these days? RMC Retro on most outlets. Uh, The location is the cave. The channel is RMC Retro, yes. Thank you for having me on, James. My pleasure, Neil. It's good to have you on again. I think we spoke probably about nine months ago in a podcast last, or maybe longer than that, actually. And you just made the switch that's right new digs and yeah uh, so so how's that going for you there's been quite a lot going on recently there's been an awful lot going on i've been working as much as i can every month to um turn this place into a museum that the public can come and visit so um i've been building a library that i'm sat in front of here we've got um a hands-on area full of systems that people can come and play on and um just last week a kickstarter ended which was the big drive to raise funds to buy the glass cabinets for the museum area and raised a ridiculous amount of money um it was all about a coloring book um of retro computers incredibly it actually caught people's imagination i didn't know if it would or not but um it 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 was a successful kickstarter and now we have the funds to complete the build and hopefully by the end of september we'll have this place open and as I remember, wasn't £6,000 the original goal? And you kind of blasted past that pretty quick, didn't you? Yeah, 6500 was the goal. And um, it ended up just over £41,000, which is oh, wow. just an incredible amount. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so we'll be buying more than just glass cabinets. We've got all kinds of ideas now for um, recreating a, a high street store from the 80s and, and opening a kitchen area to sell coffees and things like that. So it's really opened up lots of possibilities for us. Who knew colouring books were so popular? Who knew? Who knew? I'm sure it's more to do with the the facts of who you are and what you're trying to do, rather than the colouring book, but I'm sure we'll all enjoy (laughs) colouring it in, regardless, because I was one of the donators as well. Thank you. Thank you. No problem at all. Moving on, we have Tony Warner, one of the founders of Revolution Software, who's become a bit of a mainstay now to the Game & Gadget podcast. Welcome back again, Tony. Thank you, James. So... Anyone who's watched any of the previous podcasts will know it's quite a free-flowing, not not a really scripted podcast at all. In fact, the the fancy pants intro you've just seen is literally new to this episode. Hopefully we'll keep it. We'll see what the community think. But as far as topics goes, I'd like to start with the old FPGA 
situation. So I remember Neil had a meet-up, and it was just before all the COVID shenanigans started. And one of the conversations that came up then was, you know, FPGA versus real hardware versus emulation. And I said, uh, I'll probably go for FPGA rather than buy the real hardware. That seems the better route to go, you know, cheaper, less risk of things failing. And guess what I did during the COVID times? Go on. I brought real hardware. <laughs> <laughs> and did that work out for you? Generally, yes. Good, good. It did, until a Sega Saturn I purchased, and I did have a Sega Saturn back in the day, and I think the Sega Saturn's curious because it was one of those consoles where it was up against the time of the original Sony PlayStation 1, so Sony was like this newcomer to this new gaming arena, and this 3D gaming space where it all of a sudden became, it's all about polygons. And there was the Sega Saturn doing it slightly differently. It was 3D but they definitely kitted out more for the 2D aspect. And then seeing the challenge of 3D on the horizon, they went, okay, we better make some changes and make this 3D as well. And you could tell that the PlayStation 1 was just designed for 3D and the Sega Saturn was sort of, you know, if you ever saw a game compared from one platform to the other, the performance generally was better on the PlayStation mm. by far. It was an interesting time, wasn't it? Um, because the Sega Saturn did make it to market first by uh, quite a considerable amount of time. But everyone knew the PlayStation was coming. So you would go and look at the Sega Saturn through the window of the shop and you'd see like Panzer Dragoon was the game that was always on loop, wasn't it? But you, you would, it wasn't the cheapest console, the Sega Saturn, and you just knew this Sony thing was on the horizon and most of us kept our hands in our pocket and our, our money in our wallet just waiting to see what this thing could do yeah it's an interesting time it was quite time. a shame really it was quite a shame because the 2D performance of the Sega Saturn was quite legendary mm. and then they did a RAM expansion for it via a cartridge and that gave it even more capabilities in the 2D space I don't think they ever tapped that enough because it was all it has to be 3D to be commercial yeah yeah I never had one actually. It kind of it kind of came and went, and I, I guess we 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 got into PlayStation at work, and um, it just never thought about the Saturn. You know, it's, uh, now now I'm thinking I should have one. You know, presumably they're, well, they're ten a penny, are they? If only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but certainly one of the risks of not going FPGA. And for those who don't know, FPGA is just, it's not emulation. I think we ought to make that very clear. Some <laughs> people get very upset if you ever suggest it's emulation. So basically, it's, it's, it's trying to act exactly as the original chips would, bit for bit. And obviously, there's continuous improvements to get this even more accurate. But that's the goal. That's the aim. And certainly on things like the Mr. FPGA, there's a lot of different uh, platforms that are supported on that. What's the term, though? They don't call it platforms. They call it... It's a core, a core isn't it? So each core, core kind of makes this FPGA chip, which is uh, almost malleable, if you like. It will reconfigure all of those gates to act exactly like the original hardware. That's the idea. But the accuracy of that, of course, is still down to a human writing the core to, to behave in that way so there is still scope for it to be inaccurate but they're getting pretty mature some of these cores and and, and very enjoyable to play on but yeah. the best thing is 
if you've got a Mr. FPGA, and I think you'd need to invest between 150 to 250 pounds to get the kind of kit you'd need to get you up and running. Does that sound about right, Neil, to you? There's different ways. Um, the traditional way is to have sort of a stack which starts with what's called the D10 nano board that has the FPGA chip on. And you can run a lot of cores just with that. Um, it's jumped up in price recently because it had a big discount for um, students. But it's, it's, it's about 150, 130 to 150 pounds now. Um, and then if you want to run some of the more complex cores, you have to add a little RAM module. And then you might want to add a USB stack for seven usb ports and then you might want to add an io stack so you've got vga out and um hdmi and uh, all sorts of other extras so before long you have quite a sort of complex stack of different things probably going to be getting closer to the 300 pound mark by the time you've added everything to it so um we're not talking raspberry pi territory here you have to be all in for your retro gaming if you're going to get into this side of things but it, it is it is good i do still recommend it at that price and of course, it's basically modern hardware. If you buy a Sega Saturn or a Sega Mega Drive or anything older than that, we're going quite a way back. We're going decades back. So, so obviously, things like reliability becomes quite a concern. Which brings me back to my Sega Saturn. So all that time when we met up, now I said, "Oh yeah, PGA is the way I was going." And then I got, I bought myself a Sega Mega Drive, a SNES, a Saturn. It was COVID. I was bored. <laughs> Facebook Marketplace has a lot to answer for, I can tell you. But the Sega Saturn I got worked a charm when it arrived. And it was the original VA0, which is like the very first model that was released in the UK. Mm -hmm. So that gives it some nostalgic quality that was like the very first model. There was like, I think it was about 15 different variations. And there may have been only very small changes along the line of the Sega Saturn, but that's certainly quite a bit. So I've got the very first one. That's nice. But then after about a week of intense Sega Saturn, Sega Rally Championship was probably the one I played the most of which it came with. That game is so good. We could probably talk about that later, but... After a week, the power supply... Well, actually, I was playing it, and I had it sat on a nice coffee table in front of the TV, and I just happened to see there was smoke coming out the event. <laughs> and I thought, this doesn't look like a good sign. So as I panicked and unplugged it, and I thought, well, for all I know, there could be something literally burning inside. I better open it up quickly. And I was more concerned, because I'd put a mod chip in it. And I thought, maybe it's my mod chip skills of putting it in and soldering. Something's not gone quite right. Luckily, that wasn't the issue. But the power supply had indeed died. So I thought, oh, great, okay. And I looked online how much a replacement of the era power supply would be. But I'm thinking, the reliability, I'm just swapping one old part for another old part. That doesn't seem sensible. So then I started searching Google. And then I came across something called the Resaturn PSU. And I thought, okay, it's about £35. It's not that much dearer, actually, than trying to source an original Sega Saturn power supply. Anyway, I'll give it a go. Installation was super simple. And it, you can tell it's got modern components on. If you can imagine, the power supply of the Sega Saturn PSU is about this long. The Resaturn's about this long in comparison <laughs> a dramatic yeah. difference in size probably a lot uh, cooler running too as well i'd imagine so yeah. and it's running a treat but again it was another investment on top of the investment of buying the console getting a controller 
getting a new SCART cable. Cause I don't think on CRTs the SCART cables are that sensitive to interference and problems, but it seems when I'm going for an OSSC, it seems more sensitive to any interference, whether it's a visual or an audio interference. So I went for like some pack-a-punch, I think, cable. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Works treat. All the interference pretty much gone. So that was another investment. <laughs> so once you add it all up, that FPGA option looks more and more enticing as I think about it. But there's just something nice about holding an original controller. This is true. However, uh, a big problem with your FPGA desires at the moment is the Saturn core it's in very very early days you're not going to be playing sega rally on a mister at the moment um if ever it, it might need to wait until the de10 has re- been replaced with something with an fpga chip with more logic units because we're not sure if that or the gpio on it uh, can even handle that you know the playstation and possibly the saturn are probably probably the limit of the current mister it's not to say it won't happen in future but um yeah you're probably better off despite all that cost with the saturn if you're really into the saturn um and it sounds like you've got a good setup now you've sorted that psu out because it's the the psu on the saturns the voltage regulator on them would apparently go even when they were a week old back in the day apparently it's a real weak point on the system so it did well to get that far to, to get as old as yours has but um yeah most importantly did you get the steering wheel for sega rally Oh no! That's your I next didn't. investment then. <laughs> get <Sorry>. that wallet <laughs> out. <laughs> and how much is that likely to set me back? Oh, I don't know. I haven't looked for one myself uh, lately, but I'm sure there's plenty on eBay. Yeah, I I think I'll avoid that. I actually really <laughs> like the Sega Saturn controller. Doesn't sound cheap, does it? <laughs> no. A rare if, accessory. If you have to think about how much it costs, you know it's not going to be cheap. But I do, this is why I like talking to Neil and other retro enthusiasts, because they'll always convince you that spending money on retro stuff <laughs> is a good idea. So this Saturn that you bought, did it, have a, did it have a box and all the rest of it? No, just literally the console, one controller, the original SCART cable and the power cable. Do you mind me asking how much that set you back? It was £75. Hmm. Yeah, and... You, you, when you toss up the hours of entertainment you've got out of that so far, it's probably value for money. Yeah. And let's just tot up the new SCART cable, the extra <laughs> controller, the mod chip, <sighs> an OSSC. <laughs> the list could go on and on. But, yeah, as, as you say rightly, Neil, there's, there's no FPGA full support for the Sega Saturn yet, and in time I'm sure it will come. Has well, your attitude for the, towards the Sega Saturn changed through this period of ownership that you've had for it? Because, uh, you know, we were talking earlier how we dismissed it for the PlayStation in the past. Have you, have you found a new respect for it, or is it about what you were expecting? Good question. So, back in the day when I had the original Sega Saturn, I wouldn't have brought the, the Sony PlayStation because it would have been another investment. And when you were okay. a young kid... You know, you you chose one, and that was it. Whether it was the right or wrong answer for you, you 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 put your bet on, you gambled, and you hoped what came out of it was going to work. But I went with Sega because I had the Sega Mega Drive. It made sense for me to go for them, the Sega Saturn. Sony, what 
the hell do they know? They're new to this space. I'm not going to risk that. And although they had some nice advertisements and stuff, it was still... I didn't have any friends around one either. So if I'd yeah. seen a Sony PlayStation in the world, maybe... I'd have gone in a different direction. But I never regretted having a Sega Saturn back yeah. in the day. It's a good had point. some I mean, great titles on it. It's worth remembering as well, we'd just seen things like the Philips CDI before the PlayStation came. So we'd seen companies like Philips and other consumer electronics companies that weren't traditionally involved in consoles. So, yeah, you're quite right to be cautious. You were wrong, but you were right to be cautious. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened to that original Saturn? Well, again... Due to funds, it'd be a case of I'd sell whatever console I was going to be replacing and then buy the next one. I didn't have... You know, I was a young kid. <laughs> I, was, I was in my early teens, if not younger, when I was buying these consoles. So the thought of having two consoles at the same time from the same generation was highly unlikely. So you just, you'd just keep upgrading and selling the old one to help fund the new one. Yeah, on my estate, it was unheard of someone having two consoles, you know. You had a group of friends, a friend had the Super Nintendo, a friend had a Mega Drive, I was the guy with the Amiga or the Amstrad CPC, no one ever wanted to come to my house, but we all piled around to everyone else's houses, um, and none of them had two consoles. No, that was just crazy talk. So, I don't know, Tony, if you had two or more consoles in your bedroom... <laughs> Uh, well, I was computers really, and it wasn't really consoles in in, in my day. Um, so yeah, computers they were kind of one at a time. But I mean, I, I did stack them up. I mean, I, I've never sold one ever, so I've still got my, you know my first computer, my my cam- computer's links. I still got it sat on the shelf up there, um, minus its box, which sadly, sadly minus the box. But otherwise, it still works. But. I guess what well, I can't remember what I got next actually. I probably got oh, I got Amstrad CPC was next, um, and the Lynx would have gone in a box. In, well, sadly not in its box. It would have gone on a shelf somewhere, and uh, the Amstrad was the machine I used. And I only had one set up at once and, until later when we were like porting games and stuff. And yet, then because only then, like much later, I got a Spectrum and that kind of thing because we had to cross develop, you know. But uh, and then it was Atari ST. I had one of those. And, and eventually, then the, the eight-bit machines went went also onto the shelf, uh, and, and it was just uh, it was just the ST. So yeah, only only one at running at a time. But I, I never sold them. I, I mean, I hoard these things, so. <laughs> which is which is the right move. I agree. I, I regret Absolutely. every machine that I've sold. I wish wish I you know I've I've bought another Amiga and another Amstrad CPC. Yeah, yeah. It's not the same, is it? It's not the one I had in my room as a kid. I really do regret those sales. But like James, I had to sell them to, to fund the next one, so it wasn't really an option for me. Yeah, yeah. But Tony, just like you, before, I think the Sega Mega Drive was actually the first true console. But I had an Atari 2600, which was like, I guess you could say, the, the first console I ever owned. But then it was more computers. It was the Atari 65XC, it was the Commodore 64, and then it was the Acorn Archimedes A3010. So it was more that sort of traversal and then the Sega Mega Drive and then the Sega Saturn and then it sort of followed more consoles than computers I would say but I think what put me off early consoles uh, I'm sorry for enthusiasts I'm going to get up, up some upset remarks probably for saying <laughs> this but when I looked at things like the original Nintendo Entertainment System 
or the Sega Master System, I just could not cope with the music beep, beep, beep stuff going on. And then I compare that to something like even the the Atari, you know, 65XE or the Commodore 64, their music, it was music. It was basic music, but it, well, it felt more like music than beep, 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 beep. So even now, when I try and play an original Master System title or a NES title, I can't get past the beeps. It just bothers me when I'm playing. Because I'm thinking, you won't, you where's won't the Sid chip? You won't be getting any sympathy here from original ZX Spectrum owners. <laughs> <laughs> what they had to endure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Spectrum was obviously better than the Commodore 64, but the, the, the 64 music was, was proper, you know. I'll, they really I'll take that, that small win. They pushed that they, chip a long way. But early PCs was just a PC speaker, which was essentially beep, beep, buzz. So not a great deal of difference, I guess. Well, you pretty quickly had your Creative Labs 16, was it? 60, C16, Sound Blaster 16 board, and you were away, you know. Yep, I had a Sound Blaster 16 in my 486DX2. I, I can you? still never get over the fact it had a turbo button for... Do you want 8 megahertz or do you want 66? Yeah, I'm going to drop down to 8. I mean, maybe it was useful for compatibility for certain things, but when I got mine, it was like... It was just permanently turbo. I was like, I'm in my racer. I want turbo mode. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how that, the word turbo is so abused, isn't it? It really is. But then... <laughs> They've kind of got turbo performance in modern CPUs where it'll only use it at certain stages. If the CPU's been pushed quite hard, then turbo or whatever the equivalent is now will engage automatically and then it'll throttle back down if it's getting too hot. So it's kind of here again. It's just that we haven't got a button to do it. It's funny to, to, to change the change the platform, but um, you know, Porsche will sell you a, a turbo electric car. <laughs> which is really it's time to drop that word you know it really is time to drop the word the turbo's so in the air conditioning <laughs> I mean, it's just got a bigger battery you know it's uh, i mean uh, it, it's a bigger battery it's, uh, there is no forced induction of those uh, exhaust gases anymore and a, a car company really should know that okay tony take a big sip <laughs> because this is your moment in the limelight. I've said it. I've said it now. <laughs> well, there's more to come, Tony. There's more to come. So take another set, by all means. But uh, for the last few podcasts, you've been saying you're working on a new project. And we've yet to really get into the details of this new project. Well, sir, today is the day, if you're willing to reveal <laughs> about your new project. Otherwise, it's going to well, fall flat and I'm going to have to disconnect right now. Well, I, I always say I'm working on new projects, and it, and it, it I, I always am, and it, it, it tends to keep changing, and it's always some derivative or, or obsidian, I guess. But this this time it's reborn as a as a shmup, and uh, I think it's going to work. So uh, I'm busy I'm busy on that, and it take it'll take place place exactly the minute that, that the first game in 1985 ended, and he'll, he'll the guy will escape from uh, from the world. In a shmup form, vertical vertical uh, shooter. So uh, that's that's what I'm working on. Wow! And, it, and it, it's it's looking all right. It's working. So maybe I maybe I mean develop game development is is difficult, and if you're doing it on your own, it's even more difficult. But I can kind of see the path of this one, how it's going to work, and how it's not going to overwhelm me completely. So I think I'm going to do it. 
that's, that's what I'm working on. That's one thing I'm working on. The other thing I'm working on is the, uh, a, a sort of I'm writing up the the memory of uh, the story of revolution and and my coming into it and uh, you know from the eight bit days in, into the the forming of revolution and how we made particularly how we made the early games because uh, a lot of people are talking about and asking me questions about this stuff and and. I realise I'm starting to forget it because some of it was a long time ago now. It's like 30 years ago. And it's like people are saying, what tools did you use and, and what process did you go through and, and how did you deal with the graphics and what were the problems and what was the team like? And, and I'm going, well, let me think about it because it's, it, you know, did we use these computers or was it this one? Or was it this assembler or was it was it C? You know, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm talking to people from back then and, making notes and having conversations and I'm going to write it all down and, and get some photos and stick it in a stick it in a book or something see if anyone's interested but it's, yeah, it's got to be done before, before we all forget it and die you know I think yeah no I think it's really important to do that um, when you look at the industry as it is now you know you were right there at the start right there at the beginning of what is now the biggest entertainment industry in the world and people are going to want to know about that long after all of us have disappeared so um yeah it really does need to be recorded for the history books i think it's important yeah it keeps surprising me that people just keep asking me stuff how did you do things you know it's over and over again and uh, it's it just dawned on us here that we should we should try and document it you know so yeah i'm, I'm finding people that worked on it and uh, asking them questions and it's interesting because i remember some things other people remember other things you know how you remember something from years ago and you can't really remember why, but, you, you know, you can't remember what you had for lunch on last Wednesday, you know, but you can remember something from 1992 that was just, just was something in a day that was a key moment. And so, you know, teasing those key moments out from people's memories is what I'm doing at the moment. It's quite, and it's quite interesting, you know. Someone has to do it. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure you've got our full support, but... What what do you need really to make this a thing? Is it all ready to go, or is it like a next well, step? Well, it's like anything. I just need to do it, and, uh, and and then you know assemble the information. That's kind of a fun and not too difficult bit. And then and then I have to write it. That's a little bit harder. But it occurs to me it's a lot easier than writing a video game. So um, maybe maybe I've got the stomach for it. You know. Oh, it says that now. <laughs> It's got to be, you know. There's no, uh, there's no technical problems. We'll ask you, we'll ask you this again in a year's time, and we'll see what you say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we'll I'm find he's, he's just find he's turned it into a choose-your-own-adventure, so it's not a linear book and made it as complex as he can. <laughs> Turn to page fifteen to find out what happens next. <laughs> yeah, well, or, or we make the movie version, you know. <laughs> Okay, who would you like to play you? Which Hollywood actor? Uh, well, me. It's got to be the guy, and I can't remember. I can't remember his name, but you, you remember um, uh, the the uh, I can't remember the film now. Blue uh, Keanu Reeves, the, the Bill and Bill Ted. Ted, the other one. <laughs> that guy. He looks. He looks a bit like me, or I did do back in the day. So he's 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 the man for that job. It's put thought into this. I like it. Yes, <laughs> it's all thought through. <laughs> but going back to Obsidian, then let's rewind the clock a little and go. You know, tell me about Obsidian. Why is that the one you've chosen as it's going to have the sequel? 
just just because I always said I'd write a sequel to it, and and I, and I was going to do it at 25 years, and I was going to do it at 30 years, and it's all, I've missed all these dates, and uh, I I just need to, and I need to get some confidence back uh, as a as a lone developer, so I need to pick a project that I can actually finish, do it, have some have some lineage to what I did before, and then I can kind of close. I need I need closure on that on that that pledge I made all those years ago to write a sequel, so. I'm I'm really going to do it, and that's that's why it's, it's just it's just because it goes back to that game, and it, it needs to. I need to do what I said it was going to do, like back in 1986 or something. It, it, it sounds like you've got a severe itch that you need to scratch this one. I, I've got to do it just to prove I can do it. Yeah, just it out of interest, no matter how uh, bad it is. What, what it will you be? be um, what will you be developing it in? Will you be using something like Unity or one of those engines or? We use. Yeah, I'm I'm a Unity guy now, you know. Okay. I wasn't. I, I resisted it for a long time, like a, like a lot of people of my my generation. You know, we 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 couldn't couldn't get used to how it worked and and the and the the, the workflow and the, just the general approach. But I've, I've been doing it as a job for like two three years, and now it seems natural to me to do things in Unity. So, I'll, if it if it makes it easier and it and it solves the problems that it solves with platforms and you know, Android and iOS and all the stuff you don't want to know about, really, that just get between you and actually making a game. Unity does solve those problems as, as well as anything does. So, you know, C Sharp I like, so let's let's just go with it. That's why. So what do you have right now, then, for this sequel? What? How does it look? Well, I mean, it, it's... it's, it's it's uh, you know you've got the ship and you can shoot things and weapons float down and and things blow up and Starfield works and the score works and the structure the structure's all there. It's just a case of filling it in that with the content. So you know more more baddies and more weapons and shields and stuff. It's just a case of filling that stuff out and then making the levels. You know, and and the twisty strange things that I want to put in to differentiate it from similar games. Is there anything from the original games that you can go back code-wise and just almost drop in, like, um, I don't know, the maths involved in the patterns to make the enemy um, swarms come in and spin around and things like that, or do you not even look at the old code at all? Not not the code, because I mean, it, was, no. it was more what we called in those days an iCode adventure, so there wasn't even any shooting in it. It was just it was like a, um, exploring and puzzle-type right. stuff, collecting things and dropping things. But it was it was written in in hexadecimal assembler, so there's not there's not a lot to pull out of that. Um, interestingly, I've got the graphics in um, in PNG form that someone pulled out of the the CPC ROM, um, oh, sorry CPC disk image. So I've got the graphics, so I can like the building blocks that made the backgrounds. I can I can I can pull all of them out, and then I'm going to build like structures that float float past in the background out of the original graphics. So that's that's what I'll do with that. Cool. I mean, it's very low res, but it, it, I think it'll look all right, actually, because because they were blocks, they were like base relief blocks. Um, they, they actually expand quite nicely. So, yeah, those those guys will get another, another outing, I think. So how are you going to handle things like... Because would you, would you say it's a fair comment to say you are a programmer? But you're not necessarily the graphics guy or the sound effects guy or the music guy. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the programming is is the bit that that I can do. Yeah, yeah. So I'll need some more graphics from somewhere. 
Well, I, th- so. I think you know someone who can help with that. I'm not talking about me. <laughs> do, do I? Yeah, well, I, I thought your better half would have uh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, she she might draw the central character. She's she's agreed to do that, um, uh, and and, uh, and a helper character. I don't think she's kind of going mm, to the to the to the bad guy. You know, the alien swarms and stuff. I don't think she's up for that. She's uh, she's busy doing her graphic novel. So I think uh, I think it would cost a lot of money actually to to, to pry her away from that. So as we're on the thread, she's, she's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Negotiations so the... are ongoing. Oh, I'm sure they are. <laughs> she's thinking about how much it's going to cost. <laughs> So when we're talking about these original titles, I know one of the things we discussed and you pointed out that you'd posted on the Facebook group and was Broken Sword and how you'd actually done like a little test with the new artificial intelligence because everything's got AI these days. Everything. I mean, literally in my brain, they're going to put some artificial intelligence one day. But that's a topic for another podcast. But anyway, the point is, it's being used now for enhancing old imagery and mm. up-resing, so we say. So mm. we've seen in emulators, actually, for many years ago, where it would add filters, and it's sacrilege to a lot of people to change those original, what we call pixel art nowadays. They never called it pixel art years ago. It was just that was the limitation. That's what they did. But now you can use uh, filters to basically make it look smoother, maybe a little bit more like it's been drawn in a modern time. And some of it's more successful than others. But And AI is doing a similar kind of thing where you can take an old 640 by 480 image and blow it up to 4K and it will do its very best to interpret the details that it thinks should be there that aren't if you just naturally took it and made it larger yourself. And you've tried this on Broken Sword. You've done a mm. 2x increase. Mm. And mm. the results are actually really nice. And you can never it tell was, with these things. It was a lot better than expected, yeah. yeah. That's, that's why I posted to see just to kind of mess with people, really. But, um, uh, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it looked all right, didn't it? I mean, I didn't think it was going to work. And we ran it through and we, we were like, whoa, this stuff actually looks all right. You know, so... I mean, I mean, in theory, you know, Revolution could could take that road, and uh, uh, they could they could do a remastered Broken Sword, and it would actually, I think, it would it would be pretty nice, you know. Because the thing about Broken Sword is people are still playing it, um, but it's a bit of a creaky-old engine now, and it's still playing very low res, you know. So you know, you could you could put it in a nice fresh engine and up up res the graphics a bit, and it'd be, it'd be quite a nice thing to have, I think. Keep it there going was, a few more years, you know. There, there was another example of this this week. I don't know if you saw the the, the Simpsons Hit and Run remaster that someone did this week. Um, in the space of just one week, they put this thing together using the Unreal Engine, and right. um, the guy he managed to rip the maps because it's a three D game. So he ripped that, but also ripped the textures, and he was scaling it all up to four K. But of course, the textures just looked awful. And yeah, yeah. The, the the secret source for him was this thing called Gigapixel AI, which um, used AI to upscale. So it's not just it's not just interpolating the pixels; it's actually intelligently drawing extra bits what it thinks should be in there. Um, it's incredible how it works, and and it just worked beautifully. It just scaled up this old PlayStation Two game to four K, and then he did the rest with the physics and whatnot, and got a pretty 
good looking version of Simpsons Hit and Run in, in the space of a week. Um, so I it's think amazing. that's the one I was using actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have to yeah. intervene at all and do anything manually, or did Gigapixel do it all for you? No, I just I just dragged the files in. I just had dra- dragged a PNG in and uh, and it and didn't touch anything and and had it spit out the PNG at the other side. Uh, I, I didn't mess with it at all. I didn't, I, I just like file in, file out. I mean, I, I didn't even look at it long enough to figure out if there was anything you could adjust. You know, that, mm. that, that there may or may not be. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it sits and thinks about it quite a long time. You know, it's 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 doing something, uh, and then then out the other side comes quite quite an impressive result you know because you know the you can't get something from nothing mm-hmm. you, you just can't you know um like you know the the blade runner scene where he goes the zooming in and goes around the corner and stuff i mean you can't do that because it's not there you know it's, it's a photograph and you, you can't see around corners and you can't get you can't enhance nothing into something you know to, to reveal detail that's not there but somehow this this thing it really does do some it pulls some trick to to to, to fill in the detail, you know, somehow. I, I, it's kind of magical in a way, because you can't see how it's doing it. So let's say tomorrow somebody gave sign-off and said, yeah, we've got to do a Broken Sword 1 remastered. This is fine in the sense of, you know, backgrounds and interface elements seem like prime targets for an AI upscale. But when you start thinking about animation and the connection between those animations, and imagine that's going to be quite a bit more complicated well probably not because you they're all there as bitmaps in the in the in the pack files for broken swords so i mean we we at revolution we we were very bad at archiving because we never thought there was any future in in something we just published so we would very rapidly lose what we just worked on and of course we don't have the original source materials or not not very many for for broken sword and besides, they were they were drawn at the resolution they were they were used at, which was relatively low. So even if we had them, we'd, we'd still be in the same position. So the job for a Broken Sword remastered is to is to take the original game and write some code to pull the resources out, put them back into PNG format or whatever, um, a lossless or something, and then and then feed them through this megapixel thing, so they come out the other side enhanced. And then reassemble the whole lot back into a new pack file and push it through an updated engine, because the the engine sources still exist. So you know it's not it's not too difficult to figure out how to do that. Uh, I mean it would be a lot of work, but as as long as I mean the only thing I worried slightly about was was that the, the way Broken Sword works is that often the the animations where George say say George is going to pull a lever and the lever's on a wall. It, George would walk into position, and then then the animation would be a solid block where the the background was drawn on the sprite, and that was drawn over the, the original background. Uh, if, you, if you understand what I mean, yeah. So if if the two if there was a mismatch between the two enhanced images, one of you know the one that is the background and the one is the animation, which is a small cutout. If there was a mismatch there, then you would see the edge where the and it would look wrong. And there's a chance that would happen, but I, I suspect it will actually be okay. And it would it would be reasonably easy to test it because all we have to do is take a take a square out of one of the bitmaps, the, the backgrounds that we've got, and, and enhance that, and then see if it slots back on top. And and if that works fine, then you, then you can be reasonably certain that the game itself will, in its entirety, would 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 uh, 
enhanced circuit. And if that if that's true, then it's it's really just a case of grafting through the whole thing, piece, pulling it apart and then piecing it back together again. It's not it's not trivial, but it's not it's not a killer. You know, if you if you if you if Revolution said we're going to do this and we've got six months and here's some resource, you know, then then you know it could be done. Wow. I, I, and it would be pretty nice. Absolutely. I'm a massive fan of Broken Sword, particularly the first one. I enjoyed the second one, but the first one, I think it was just the fact it was the Knights Templar, that you were jumping all around Europe in particular, and the characters just really stood out in that game. Mm. So, and it, yeah, it, it would be perfectly <laughs> suited, this uh, a remastered version, for the whole tablet generation to jab their fingers instead of pointing and clicking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean, we've got a good. We did a good UI for the original, um, the original iOS games and Android versions. So, you know, we we just pull that UI into the original game. So it would be mouse, it would be touch, both on the. Uh, it would be the original content rather than the director's cut, which a lot of people aren't so keen on. So you know, it'd be, it'd be best of all worlds, really. You know, people should write to write to Charles and tell him. That's Charles Cecil. <laughs> Charles Cecil, PO Box. You'll find, you find him on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, just just bug the guy until he until he agrees to do it. You know. Well, I think the next concept you need to do, Tony, is you've done a, a double increase in resolution. You need to do 4K now. Yeah. Let's push maybe it as far as we can. Maybe in 20 years' time, we're having another conversation where we say, "Well, you know, there's this new AI. And we we can enhance the the remastered one now." For our new 8K TVs. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, in fact, was I've seen on Instagram Obsidian. Haven't you been collecting all the old original tapes for that game? Wherever you see one, you buy one. Is that the one I've been seeing? Yes. Why? <laughs> it's a sickness. <laughs> so how many do you actually have right now? Um, it's looking up, so they must be close by. There's two two stacks of of cassettes. It's, I don't know. It, it's like it's about forty, I think. Wow. Okay. And are these all There's different on, variants of versions, or are you just just buying no, every mostly, one you see? Well, <laughs> there's only well, there are two there are two variations. There's the, there's the original one, then there was an uh, uh, what was it called? There's the US Gold um, repackaged one. Um, which isn't quite as nice or quite as collectible, but um, most most of my I've got about six of those. But the original one I've got is what mostly what I've got. Um, but there's one on eBay and it's fifty quid, and, I, and, I, and that's too much even for me. So I, have, wow. I'm, I know it's there for sale, but I'm not I'm not fifty quid's too much. Wow, you could devalue that to a pound if suddenly forty flood the market. <laughs> yeah, I could do a Bitcoin, couldn't I? Just just dump the market and then rebuy at the bottom. <laughs> a whale, an, an obsidian whale. <laughs> it's a niche market, though. And Neil, in the kind of FPGA space, haven't you been working on something in collaboration as well? Yeah, so um, I share this building here with an electronics company who have a rich history in FPGA development um, and video games as well. Going all the way back to the mid-80s, they developed uh, a console called the BBC Bridge Computer, which was a console dedicated to the game of bridge, which I know nothing about. But, um, you know, they did. And way before that, in the 60s and 70s, they did fruit machines. 
And then moving into the 90s, they made uh, the boards that went into fruit machines and quiz machines, but a lot of them had FPGA-based, um, well, they had 68,000 chips, but they had FPGA chips for a lot of the encryption and things like that to stop people stealing the game ROMs or hacking it or whatever else they wanted to do with fruit machines. So they've got a lot of experience. And with them, we've created, I've actually got it next to me, a consolized version of the, the Mister. So FPGA in a nice little console. That's actually a 3D printed case. Um, but a pretty wow. nice one uh, and so they've created a whole new board that the DE10 snaps on and then it just is simplified you don't have to buy all these bits to create a, uh, a stack and lots of power supplies and wires everywhere it's just a nice neat thing with HDMI with VGA with a SCART RGB SCART output um, and then in addition we've added um, I won't pull it off now but there's, there's an add-on slot at the front so if anyone wants something that it hasn't got, we can, like MIDI or something like that, we can create add-ons to just slot on the front. And uh, anyone who wants to develop for it, we're just encouraging and sharing the, the 3D files for the case, all of the information to create add-ons. We're just trying to encourage people to get involved. And um, we're really happy with it. Yeah, it, it's uh, there's, there's about 10 of them being tested right now. Um, we found a few faults, which we fixed. Well, the next batch is 20. Uh, and if we're happy with them, we'll have these on sale by October. So we're nearly there. Um, yeah. So a consolized mister. And do we have an RRP? Uh, the board will be £141.66 pence plus VAT. So that's 169.99 with the VAT. But if you're outside the UK, you don't pay that. Um, which, uh, when you add up all the components of a stack in a traditional mister system, it is cheaper and has more features you've still got to buy the de10 to go on top of that so hopefully it's affordable and i say affordable in quotes because you it's still a price where you've got to be really into this um and want to go beyond the raspberry pi and the retro pi scene and, and try fpga but it's more affordable than other options out there and more convenient we hope um so yeah fingers crossed what? it's it's called the mr multi-system as a nod to the unreleased conics multi-system <laughs> well someone spent quite a lot of money on real hardware just lately <laughs> fpga is certainly a, a very good viable alternative <laughs> yeah yeah that, give it a go that was fascinating and that's handy isn't it to have in your new cave which is ironically in a loft yeah, I just by coincidence find myself in a loft above an electronics company with gaming heritage and FPGA experience. It's it's, it's fate. Uh, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. very happy to be here. Yeah, and it was a fantastic backdrop. Go on, sorry. Sorry, Neil, you, you're going to open a, a, a retro museum. Yeah, so the cave has grown to a size now where. Um, uh, I've got the space. I've created a hands-on exhibition with about uh, about 30 machines out that people can come and sit at. I say sit at because just yesterday I carried 250 kilograms of IKEA chairs up to the top of the mill, which I have to build tomorrow. So there will be seating tomorrow. <laughs> um, and then a museum area. I'm sat in the library area. We've got uh, an old WH Smith shop recreation that we're building. So, um, yeah, it's it's a sizable space. And uh, after September, we're going to open it up um, to the public. So, yeah, it's down just outside Stroud in uh, Gloucestershire. Right. Um, and if all goes well, there's more space behind me where we can um, put arcade machines. So I want to 
hopefully be successful enough to open what I'll call the secret arcade because it'll be hidden behind these bookshelves and get some classic arcade machines in there. Yeah. That's the plan. It's kind of a kind of a dream of mine to open a, a retro retro computer museum. You know, I went to, I went to the one in Berlin um, and, and was quite inspired by that. You know, and, and, and but I saw lots of gaps in what they had. Um, mm-hmm. You know, UK specific gaps really, as much as anything. And, and I kind of thought we could, we could take take that idea and do it in the UK. You know, it'd be be, be brilliant. Yeah. But you know, it's a justification I have for buying old machines. <laughs> It's all, well, it's all prepping for this amazing museum. Yeah. Well, you, you'll have to get over here sometime and... Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Share those ideas. <laughs> have you got Subsidian, Neil? I'm going to go through all my tapes and have a look because uh, it's not until now that I've got the space to actually unpack everything. You know, up until now, I'll make a video, it goes in a box, it goes in storage because I haven't got the space for it. But um, now the, the museum cabinets are arriving, I'm starting to pull all the tapes out because they all, you know, you know how cassette tapes, they get a bit grimy and dirty and they all need a wipe down, need to check they all work and things like that. So I'll be looking out specifically for Obsidian, yeah. So how do well, you check? Worth a lot of money. Well, at the minute, yeah. As long as the market is unflooded, it'll be absolutely fine. So how, how do you check a tape? Because I imagine you can't play through the whole game. It would be like level one, load, level two, load. What is if it's a, if it's a multi-loader, that? I guess, yeah. yeah. Um, I do have a little five and a quarter inch tape drive that goes into a PC. Um, so you can just put a tape in and, and rip the WAV file out of it. Uh, it does it in real time so it's no quicker than just loading the game but you can then load that into an emulator and check it um uh, i'm gonna need to find some volunteers to run this museum properly so once i've got it ready you know i've I've been making some moves this week i've been on uh, bbc radio gloucestershire (laughs) and uh, just a minute ago i had an email from bbc points west so i'm starting to sort of get from local radio to local telly and starting to raise awareness and then i'll put the call out for volunteers and you know archiving tapes checking they work um scanning magazines you know i want to try and capture all this stuff while i can regardless of whether i can legally share it because copyright on magazines and things like that at least capture it while you still can at least store it somewhere and then further down the line we'll figure out how we can properly share that with people but that's what i want to do with the volunteers yeah so you've been on bbc gloucestershire BBC Radio Gloucestershire tomorrow. Yeah, they recorded it last week. And I on the Game and Gadget podcast. It doesn't get any better than that, does Uh, it? Yeah, exactly. I've peaked. I've peaked. But it was funny. The lad who came from BBC Radio to interview me, uh, he must have been mid-20s, and um, his mind was blown when I showed him a cassette tape and told him "This this is how we used to load games. And it took, you know, sometimes 10, 15 minutes what did you do what did you do while it was loading well i pulled read a magazine that was the ideal magazine reading time we read the instructions cover to cover blew his mind yeah you should have said you you went on the internet (laughs) (laughs) wrote to my pen friend (laughs) which is ironic Mm. because in modern gaming there's still games that can take quite a few minutes to load and i tend to just grab the smartphone and start looking at yeah. twitter or facebook or whatever else just to pass the time i wait for but we didn't have such luxuries back then no all the hour-long updates that have to come down for some modern game in some cases it's worse than it's ever been if if you haven't updated well, yeah. for a while i mean updates are the new cassette load aren't they really mm. 
games like Discworld without the internet and walkthroughs. <laughs> oh my word. It was a challenge. People do not know the bone these days when it comes to, yeah, I'll just go on the internet. This is how you get past this boss. Oh, there's a YouTube video for that. Oh, there's a printed walkthrough. I can just get to that. We had none of that. Yeah, we just, just keep uh, persevering. I just play this game on Twitch while people watch me live and tell me how to get past the next puzzle. I've done that with Monkey Island. It was a really fun experience, but it wasn't an authentic experience in how we used to play the games. You know, a, a LucasArts game would last me months. Uh, you know, I, 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 Lure of the Temptress, I never finished it. I can't remember what frustrated me, but I got to a point I just couldn't get past. And, you know, that's the ideal game for me to go back and play on Twitch and have someone helping me get over the, the difficult bits. Um, I think Future Wars, a Delphine software game, was the last one I did on Twitch. Um, and it was different, but it was really rewarding to actually see the whole game and get to the end of the game. Um, did you find that pixel? Yeah, exactly. Hunt the pixel. Oh, horrible. <laughs> yeah, I remember it well. We never did that, at least. <laughs> You didn't. And I have to say, the tablet interface for Broken Sword was fantastic. And it's definitely my preferred method of playing Broken Sword now is on the tablet. It seems weird now for me to play it on a computer. And there were many, many mm. ports of Broken Sword. I didn't even realise it was like a Sony PlayStation port. I could remember a Game Boy Advance port that was done years later, but I couldn't remember a Sony PlayStation port. So did you have any involvement with the goodness knows how many ports they did for that game? Well, the, I mean, the PlayStation Broken Sword games were were were, were very interesting, actually, because uh, uh, I mean, the, the main game was contracted to Virgin Interactive, and they basically gave Revolution the rights to do what we wanted with the PlayStation version. Um, and and all we did, we, we actually didn't do it ourselves. We, we got some friends of ours to port it, some people we knew to, to port it over. And, and I think we made... Uh, a, a, an epic um, misstep in, the, in that we just ported the UI, you know, as a as a cursor on the on the PlayStation, and you moved it up and down and left and right, and uh, and then it was a pretty bad experience, um, and, and put it out on on the PlayStation, and and I think there were there were sales predictions of like twenty thousand copies or something like that, um, which is why we were given the rights, I guess, because no one. There was no precedent for a, for an adventure game to to do well on the PlayStation, I don't think. And it, and it went on to sell something like quarter of a million copies, and uh, and we uh, and you know Revolution did quite quite well out of that really. And then surprisingly, with Broken Sword Two, the same thing happened again. You know, despite the fact the first one had sold, we we ended up with the rights to to the whole thing. So we so we did the, we did exactly the same again, and and did the same UI. And 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 when I think about it now, I'm, I'm thinking. You know, if we put some effort into reinventing the UI for a console, for, you know, for a gamepad specifically, you know, we could have we could have given the whole genre a, a, a real leg up on the on the consoles, and it could have turned into something much bigger than it than it did. Uh, and I I keep thinking about that over and over again because when we did it for Touch, as you say, I mean, it was it was it was quite nice, and it was it was clearly you know it wasn't a compromised UI. It was it was it was everything it needed it to be you know it was completely authentic and it wasn't fudged in any way it was you know that was the ui we tweaked it and tweaked it and tweaked it which is what we were good at, at revolution and and it it was a pretty nice a pretty nice thing and if we'd done that with the playstation um gamepad interface 
we could have had something really special and uh, we, we let that one slip by really hmm. we saw so it to it... a degree with grim fandango but that was a 3d game so that introduced the tank controls and the resident evil style walking around which is quite painful to go back to but then they fixed that in a more recent remastered version so they were mm. kind of going in that direction then mm. but then the adventure games kind of fell out of favor anyway so it all went a bit quiet on they, that from they did but maybe they wouldn't have done you see if, they, mm. if there'd been a really really playable ui for them yeah yeah um, you don't need to fail in many ways for for a genre to to get overlooked you know because I think you touched, you touched on earlier that, that if it wasn't 3D, it was it was it was not favoured at all in that in that sort of 90s period, and uh, you know it was used, it was very much the fact that we were 2D was used against us, you know, and and, and the genre by by publishers at the time, um, which was their mistake really in the in the long run. Well, look at other series titles i mean another point and click adventure i love was simon the sorcerer and simon the sorcerer 2 and then all of a sudden they had to do a 3d version and that seems to have been from publisher pressure as well now there, oh, may, yeah. there may have been yeah. an absolutely fantastic story there but as soon as i put the cd in and saw the graphics it was novel that it was 3d but it didn't look like the the beautiful 2d artwork that we had in the previous two games it was definitely a step backwards in sort of visual fidelity and detail. Again, the story may have been great. I don't know. I looked at the visuals and was like, I can't play this. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, you were talking on your last podcast about 3D FX cards. You'd invested this money in this 3D card. You would have been disappointed if you hadn't seen that being worked as well. So, yeah. It's true. It's true. There's, I guess there's certain genres where 3D works very well. And 2D works very well. And the Grim Fandango kind of looked for that balance. It had those pre-rendered backdrops, and, but the character was 3D. And the way you controlled the character, you were moving him up or you are moving him left or you are moving him right with the controller. You weren't actually pointing at a thing and selecting necessarily. You are actually moving the character himself. Sam the Saucer 3D was all 3D. And I think maybe they were a bit too over right. If they had gone for a pre-rendered backdrop... You know, maybe all sins would have been forgiven. They could have gone and had more detail, and just the character being three D would have been enough. But it was all three D. So if you ever, the thing I remember most about Sam and the Sorcerer One is walking through the forest and hearing the bird song and that beautiful MT thirty two music going off in the background with the like the flutes and everything. And then you go into Sam and the Sorcerer three D, and it's just like flat polygons. That it's meant to be grass, and it just it just wasn't the same and it's all about traversal more so in 3d i would say than 2d about getting from one place to the other it really needs to pull you in more so than even 2d and it, it just couldn't do it so even my 3d effects looked at sam the source of 3d and went what <laughs> what can i do with this <laughs> there's not enough polygons here so it was it was it was definitely sad and i i remember loads of fans crying at the talent oh there's going to be a 2D Sam and the Sorcerer 3. Yeah, we've got to do it. We've got to do it. And it never materialised, unfortunately. But I'm curious at what a 2D Sam and the Sorcerer 3 would have been like. They were dark days for some of us. Indeed. Well, let's try and end on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had some really good discussions, gentlemen. So I appreciate your time today. But what is... 
the thing we can take away from retro in particular right now there's certainly a surge of interest and when i look at all the remakes and remasters and enhance i've been playing quake on the nintendo switch version which has quake 64 if you look in the add-ons which was if you want to play the nintendo 64 version which had the quirk of additional colored lighting it's just wonderfully bizarre but it's wonderful I've been playing Quake quite a lot now if you'd have put the original Quake on the PC for me I'd probably played it too long but playing it on the Switch on a handheld it's brought back some fun nostalgia in a new way that sounds good actually I've been enjoying it not sure my wife asked I've been laying next to her in bed playing on the Switch which does bring you a lot of bonus points it has to be said it's on my list of things to try the Quake remake uh, have you got the full mouse look with it now so up and down and everything because on the original Quake it was I know there were patches later but it was a bit clunky so uh, more like a modern FPS but with that nostalgia hit right I've got exactly to try that. this I've got to try this no I've been I've been a, excuse the pun a blast it's <laughs> I'd highly recommend it. Anyone who played Quake back in the day will enjoy playing it. I'm sure. I think it's on Game Pass for free if you've got an Xbox. So if you've subscribed to that, which I'll, again, if you've got an Xbox, I'll certainly get Game Pass. Try it. Even if you didn't play it back in the day. If you're new to Quake, any version, Quake 1 just had something about it, particularly the first episode and that sort of gothic, medieval vibe that was going on. Mm. Well, it was the first one, really, that was full full movement wasn't it yeah properly 3d with properly 3d enemies is it as brown as it ever was oh yes definitely brown (laughs) it's definitely brown but if again if you play the quake 64 version there's colored lighting in parts of it but i don't know why on the quake 64 version on the switch they've done like a i'm not sure if it's meant to be like a crt filter but it feels like that there's certainly something going on over the top of the image and it's horrible Please remove it. It's not good. Or at least give us the option to turn it off. But other than that, yeah, it's as brown as ever, but it's running fantastic. It's got 16 by 9 support, 1080p if you're in dock mode for the Switch. Available on many platforms. I and did that's see the sales pitch. I did see LGR did a video where he ran it, I think, 640 by 480 on a CRT. They had a lot of fun doing that. There you go. Uh, LGR does that a lot. <laughs> A modern vintage, modern vintage gamer also did some of the coding work for it as yeah, well. Yeah, he was so he a developer on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, small world, small world. If you're if you're on YouTube these days, they usually got their hands in many pies. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks again for your time, gentlemen. It's been an absolute pleasure, and we'll wrap it up for this Game and Gadget podcast episode eight. <laughs> <laughs>